Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again with another episode of the Knollcast. Bud, want to give our thanks, as always, to our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana. Louisiana Hot Sauce, three simple ingredients, one fantastic product, and the title sponsor of the Knollcast. And being associated with anything Florida State Athletics right now is a uh, is a safe and exciting play. Actually going to kick off the Knollcast with uh, some dedicated hoops talk. So not something you'll hear from us frequently, but after last night, there is no other direction to go in. And uh, just as easy of a choice it is to put a little bit of uh, Louisiana hot sauce on top of a bowl of grits or uh, fish dish or anything else. Let's jump into a uh, little bit of talk of what Leonard Hamilton's doing on the hard court right now. All right. So what was your reaction when, when Trent threw that down? A lot of expletives. I mean, the room was silent 10 minutes beforehand, and all of a sudden, a four to five word combo that was, uh, I'm glad there was no microphone, because it was holy damn, damn, damn. And then uh, the Pat Williams one got a pretty similar reaction from me as well. So we, we talked at about halftime, because you, you called me and we were chatting about the game a little bit, and I was like, man, this I'm kind of glad we waited to record until tonight, I mean, because just we knew we were going to have some content to talk about. And it just kind of felt in the first half, I, I don't think Florida State was necessarily playing poorly, but it was just like, damn, like, is every three this McMahon guy takes, are they all going to go down? Um, and, and just they they couldn't get the ball into the bucket in the first half. But, God, in the second half, it was just – it was a dominant performance, and they really played Florida State, like, peak Leonard Hamilton basketball, right? It, it was – Tenacious defense with playing 9, 10, 11 guys in a half and everybody sort of knowing their role. I, I really liked how the announcers pointed out like how smart the defense was too and how like they, they didn't really seem to have much drop off in terms of assignment. So so often when you when you have a defense that's as big as this, everybody focuses just on how big the defense is. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, they're long. That's, yep, they're long and that's right. And if you're kind of just a, Regular announcer, maybe you don't point that out. Or maybe that's all you point out, rather. But, like, he was so right, I got to think about it. I was like, man, that is so true. Like, how much of a drop-off is there in terms of assignment and effort when, when, when you have these, like, wholesale line changes come into the game? Man, there's not much. The amount of collective buy-in is absolutely amazing uh, as far as what you get from uh, the Vipers as their more appropriate name rather than the the Caucasian closers as I like to refer to them. But uh, it's just amazing. It's amazing the culture around the program. It's how much uh, people buy in. And uh, we talk all the time about like that this is the Camelot of Florida State basketball or these are the halcyon days of Florida State basketball. Uh, woo boy, I'm not sure I didn't witness the the halcyon 15 minutes of Florida State basketball last night. I mean, that was as an incredible performance and a dominant stretch as you're going to see. And earlier in the year, the Louisville game was kind of the game that confirmed to us this isn't just kind of a stopgap team. This isn't just a team to get us from an incredibly talented team that had a great run last year to the potentially talented roster that you're looking at 2021. This is its own team in its own right. And I think last night the Louisville game can confirm that not only you have that, but you've got you've got a special type of attitude <laughs> that surrounds this team uh, where they want to beat you and they kind of want to embarrass you along the process. Uh, it was just great to see an incredible performance. And uh, man, that's that's a special high water mark for Florida State basketball. And the idea, uh, like me, we and many others have talked about, 
I was there in Atlanta when they won the uh, ACC tournament. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun. But there would be an incredible amount of achievement for this program and this conference to win the regular season title. Uh, it would have to be one of the more impressive things that Leonard's accomplished in general. And after last night, that is uh, is very much back in play as well. Do you remember about a month ago or maybe six weeks ago, we, we got asked, hey, could they be a one seed? You know, and, and like, how well do you think they will do in the tournament? I said, I, I, we didn't know how well they would do in the tournament. Probably pretty well because they play a whole lot of guys. They, they seem to be able to, to find a hot hand and they, they play really tenacious defense. But we also, the other part of that question we answered was, okay, like, how many teams do you think would be like clear, no doubt favorites over them? And I think we had probably, what, six or seven at the time, maybe? I don't know if that list hasn't shrunk by by two or three. Like Kansas? Yeah, I'm taking Kansas to beat Florida State. I'm taking Baylor to beat Florida State. Duke and Gonzaga. Man, after that, like, do, do you really believe in San Diego State that much? I, I don't know that I actually do. I mean, like, they play I mean, the Mountain West. We'll see, and I know we're kind of just getting really in the weeds here with us talking Mountain West strength of schedule with with basketball. <laughs> but man, like almost all the teams in the country, you match Florida State up. I, I'm saying it's either Florida State or, or a coin flip, and there's a couple teams that okay, yeah, like I think Kansas is a better basketball team, but they, if you just rank them based on how good they are, like you can make an argument Florida State's probably anywhere from like. Like, what's the highest you, you would say that they deserve to be ranked? Fifth? Maybe? I mean, yeah. Nationally? Yeah. Yeah, fifth or sixth. Like that's still, that's really damn impressive considering you know, considering last year. Good Lord. Tournament basketball is tough, and, and you know, you, you bump into a team that were a particular mismatch, or you bump into a team where a, you know, kid hits nine of 12 from three or something like that. Just crazy things can happen, but... You've certainly got the ingredients for a team that can make a deep run. And when you've got a, a, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a senior, but when you have a veteran guard and the type of individual like Forrest who can, uh, he almost reminds me of like a midfielder in soccer who can just dictate the pace uh, of the game, how it's played, what the other team can do. Uh, It's just amazing how much of an impact that guy can exert onto uh, so many aspects of a game. And uh, that's a guy that can, can take over and, and really be somebody that leads you through the more critical moments of uh, of tournament play. And also when he's uh, old and doesn't want to go out to a, a basketball court anymore, I imagine uh, I imagine Mr. Force would be a pretty damn good pool player based off some of the English that he puts on his shots and the manipulation of the ball off the backboard. That dude, uh, that dude understands some uh, some athletic geometry uh, in a in a nice and really fun manner to watch. I want to put a wedge in his hand and just, just see him spinning around the greens. I mean, that, that that could be really exciting. You know, another kind of cool difference about this team. And look, it's fine if you want to jump on the bandwagon now. Okay, like that's that's fine. You don't have to be a diehard to appreciate this team. This team is really fun to watch, but the, like there's kind of a little bit of like fu in this team, but it comes like. This team is a, is kind of a guard led team this year, and in previous years, not like necessarily last year, but like we've had years here in Tallahassee where it's like okay, it's it's big man, but yet it's sometimes hard to like establish the flow of the game if you're a big man led team because like sometimes the ball doesn't get into them because your guards sort of get 
they 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 kind of lose the moment. And I feel like Florida State's guards don't like they're they're ever present throughout the game. Yeah, yeah, really impressive, and how much length and how deep the bench can go. It's just a an amazing program that's been built up, and and like we said uh, last night, certainly felt like kind of a, a crowning achievement as to what Leonard's been working on, and and it all coming together. And so many others have talked about this and talked about it immediately on social media, but that was a that was an, an atmosphere, at least from afar, that I wasn't sure I would see in Tallahassee uh, for a basketball game. That was just. Uh, Absolutely special and a hell of a lot of fun to watch and consume. You talk to anybody who was there. That that's they're hard pressed to find a louder uh, game in Tallahassee than that. In terms of hoops. All right. Uh, we'll we'll just briefly mention on this. And honestly, this is something I've been tr- I've, I've meant to bring up for uh, two episodes now. And I am uh, very intentional with not being critical of people who I don't think make like a significant amount of money. So. If it's not like a position coach or certainly a coordinator or a head coach, you know, I, I choose my words selectively. And at this point in the process, what I'm about to talk about, I think, transcends whoever it directly is responsible for it. But uh, I don't want to get on a soapbox here. We're not going to spend more than 90 seconds or two minutes. But uh, someone at Florida State University needs to directly address the aesthetics of the exterior of the stadium right now. You cannot have these banners just hanging for th- what, two to three months now? It is, uh, it's an embarrassment. It's something that should have been dealt with. It's something that hopefully will be dealt with uh, sooner than later. Uh, Florida State's head coach may talk with a, a twang of hyperbole when he talks about iconic brands and other things, but man, even my most SEC of SEC friends acknowledge that the exterior of Doak Campbell Stadium is a hell of a look, and it's impressive, and it's one of the things that Florida State has done very well uh, when, you know, chasing the the biggest of big boys in college football. And there's just no reason to have a black eye like that on your stadium for as long as it's been. And, uh, you know, again, from a small, insignificant voice in the uh, larger fan base, I hope that gets dealt with sooner than later. It's an embarrassment and it's lasted longer than it should. Yeah, C- Coach Norvell talks about the, the way you do small things is the way you do all things. And, and he's really big into that, that fra- uh, phrasing. You drive by the stadium and that's, kind of what you notice and that's not a great first impression I, I it's one of those things where I kind of ask like would how long would this be this way at a at an LSU right would would, would this still be up at Georgia I don't know that it would man not not, not for that long all right uh, if you were on social media last night you probably saw that that Bill Murray went to the same place that we plan on going to the spring game, and that is uh, the patio of Township. Uh, invite all of you guys out there and ladies to uh, to join us for the spring game. Going to have a, a meet and greet uh, with an intentional pun there that the uh, Nolcast is going to be working on providing some uh, pulled pork and ribs. And uh, look forward to meeting and interacting with as many of you guys as possible uh, something that we've just kind of a celebration of both the podcast and its growth and also the relationship that we've had uh, with Matt Thompson, Madison Social Township, everybody within the For the Table restaurant family since day one. Uh, fantastic partners to us. We couldn't ask for uh, a better setting to host you guys, and we couldn't ask for a better partner on the podcast. So please keep that in mind. We look forward to meeting as many of you guys as possible in the third week of April. I can't wait, man. That's going to be so much fun. We. Uh- Every time we do this, we see a lot of the same familiar faces, but I always like, you know, meeting 
me, me, me and the wives and husbands were like, hey, my, my wife listens to the podcast every single day in the car. And I didn't even like Florida State football, but now I actually like listening to the show because I, I like you too. I'm like, that's, I appreciate that, man. That That is that is awesome. Um, and, and meeting all the new faces. We, we know not everybody can come out to every event we do, but we'd love to have you all out there again for the spring game at Township. Should be really nice weather. And uh, last year it was a blast. So excited to do it again. We asked uh, for questions, obviously, some on Twitter, some on email, and we always check first our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Nolcast. We have quite a few uh, here tonight, uh, 14 in all. We'll try to get to as many as possible. If we don't, then we'll have to do a uh, bonus episode with some of these. And I think we're actually pretty close to getting the snap count data, by the way, including the special teams. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. Uh but uh, you, you want to? Uh, why don't you lead off first tonight, as far as the reading goes? All right, Stephen, ask us any insight on what happened with AJ Lighton. Yeah. Uh, so multiple reports now that he uh, was not living up to the standards of the offseason program. It wasn't really kind of getting with the program, if you will. I, I don't know if that means walking out of conditioning or whatever you want to believe happened there. Um, but clearly they didn't feel like he was living up to his end of the bargain. And the, uh, the language that Florida State used uh, to uh, Chris Nee of Knowles 24-7 when he asked about it was uh, removed from the roster, quote-unquote. I think I want to read in some intentionality to the statement and, and the use of the word removed, right, as opposed to he's no longer with the team or uh, yeah, he's transferring or we, you know parting ways. I mean, removed seems sort of intentional. So I kind of wanted to take and, and take this question first, but also spin it on you and say, like, do we want to talk the, about the idea of making an example early out of someone to, to sort of set your own culture and your own tone and say, hey, like, there's a guy here who not seems a great player, but he didn't suck. And now he's not going to be around. If he can go, what does that say about me as a player? Maybe I wasn't quite as good as AJ. Maybe, maybe I need to kind of get with the program. And, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that especially in light of we know they're not out of this APR mess yet, and you can't just be booting players left and right, obviously, if you ever want to get out of this thing. No, I mean, I think there's a very it's – a, it's a good conversation to have. And, I, you know, I had heard maybe a name along the line of scrimmage that not necessarily that coaches were looking to run off, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's guys that they want to see a significant change in uh, direction as far as – how they're projecting as a prospect and and how much they uh, truly invest and buy into the program. And uh, AJ was a a talented kid as far as uh, where he was ranked coming out of high school, Uh, talented uh, prospect out of Maryland, who I believe was as high as number two or three nationally at the free safety position, uh, depending on where you looked, but a good player, physically gifted. And, you know, if you did want to look at the idea of making an example, quote unquote example of somebody, uh, maybe Litton's a, a perfect kind of happy medium here. A kid that's talented enough to potentially contribute if things are going right. And also a kid that, you know, you, you won't exactly have to uh, rearrange your plans in the secondary for by by dismissing. So whatever happens, I wish the best for Litton. And it wouldn't shock me if there's not maybe a, another name or two that gets removed from the roster, you know, by the end of uh, by the end of March. I, I think I agree. Do, if you're going to do it, do it early. And and kind of kind of set the tone for your culture, uh, but be mindful. Like 
if it doesn't work, there's not that many cuts you can make without really kind of screwing up your APR score there. Um, although I think it's you know, obviously better than it than it used to be. So a uh, different Stephen here, Stephen B. asks. I, I don't want you all to think that, that we we let Stephen lead off the, the the show with with two consecutive questions here. Stephen asks, now that the dust of recruiting has settled somewhat, what is the most pressing need of the team right now? How can Coach Norbell meet that need to its highest potential? Well, I mean, if if you're defining <laughs> the most pressing need as to if Mike Norvell could log into a uh, NCAA football 2020, create a player and uh, put it on his roster, I would certainly think that that's a, an offensive tackle. Uh, now, how they go about doing that, you know, a lot of swings and misses in the portal. They got a kid that they're probably going to have to play at tackle that they'd otherwise like to play uh, at guard. But, you know, you need consistency with that position group. There's, there's people whose uh, opinions Bud and I very much value uh, that think think that the previous offensive line coach is is maybe as good as anybody in the country. Uh, it wasn't a problem last year with your coaching. You had good coaching. You need consistency with development. You need a guy who can spend two to three years with a roster, mold it, shape it, uh, and get people that he wants to buy uh, into his his process to do so. Uh, there's an, unfortunately the most pressing need. There is no area uh, for a quick fix, uh, particularly at this point in the process where it doesn't look as though the, the portal is going to be the, you know, the cure-all that you were looking for. Well, I'm going to echo your sentiments there. If I have to pick another one, um, I, I think for the long-term health of the program, figuring out uh, who your quarterback's going to be in the long term, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to start Purdy or you have to start uh, Tate this year, but Figuring out, get, getting sort of an answer for one of those guys is would, would be one I would, I would pinpoint. But of course, like Purdy's not even an early enrollee, so there's nothing he can really do about that uh, right now. I look setting the tone and the culture is probably the number one pressing thing that he has to do right now. You, you watch some of those workout videos from the the workout that was open to the media, and there's some spots in his team that are really not that talented, and. If you're not going to be that talented, you better be pretty disciplined. You better be working out in the weight room pretty pretty solidly and see if you can get to, you can kind of scrape and claw for some wins uh, that you otherwise might not have. But I, I would say, in my opinion, this is more of a long-term rebuild than some fans want, want to accept. Uh, you need to do things kind of with that in mind and, and realize that you need to lay down the foundation to make that rebuild successful. Tom P. writes, congrats on the new good, bud. Hopefully you negotiated a lifetime supply of Louisiana hot sauce and paid trips to med. So for Reuben Day each month, be careful, though, too much travel. A new baby in that new home uh, that you got with the help of Resolution Home Loans could lead to having to enlist services. Travis Johnson. Tom, that was a, a well-wrapped up plug of all four of those that support the Nullcast. Uh, if you and Ingram could pick one former player to add to this year's roster, and have them at their FSU prime, who would you pick? I, I'll say Walter Jones, and that's all I'll say about that. All right, if you're going to take Walter Jones, I'll, t- I'll take Jameis. Uh, obviously, I think the, the offensive tackle is clearly a bigger need. Because, I I mean, do you have any offensive tackles on, on this roster right now that you feel good about? I, people are going to say the transfer, but I feel good about him at guard in the ACC. I don't know that I feel good about him yet at tackle in the ACC. I'll take the most impactful position, and that, that's Jameis. But I, you you might take the best guy here with, with with the Hall of Fame offensive tackle Walter Jones, yeah. Yeah, when you get a chance to take a guy that some consider to be 
I don't know if he's necessarily the best tackle ever, but he's in the conversation. Uh, with all due respect to Jameis, that is the direction that I would go with my uh, my choice here. By the way, kids, uh, not kids, but like if y'all are younger than, well, when did Jones retire? Like three years ago, four years ago? Mm, I think uh, four years ago, yeah. All right, if you're, if you're younger than like 26 or 27, um, you may not be aware of Walter Jones. Walter Jones came to Florida State as a junior college transfer, red-shirted for a year. They red-shirted Play- him, got one year out of him. Yeah, one year. probably in hindsight, the wrong move. I think Bobby Bowden admitted that was the biggest mismanager of his, of his roster that he ever committed. So he ends he got, ends up being like an extremely early early pick in the NFL draft and starts immediately for the Seahawks and plays like I don't know twelve years maybe um, maybe more and basically never ever gives up sacks skips training camp because he doesn't want to hang out in Seattle and like do all that stuff because he knows he's already good enough uh, pushes an Escalade around a parking lot as his training I think it was an Escalade or a Tahoe one of the two somebody will fact check me on that later. And then would report after skipping most of training camp and then proceed to like keep Matt Hasselback, who wasn't that mobile, uh, totally upright at like all times. So, yeah, Walter Jones, totally badass. Just just somebody you knew you could absolutely trust. And, you know, somebody else we know that you can trust is Resolution Home Loans. When you call Shannon Young, Ingram's laughing because that, that's segue, but I mean, I, I had to, dude. Uh, when you call 844 FSU Loan, you're going to get hooked up with Shannon Young. Shannon is the best loan guy in the business, in our opinion. He helped me get my home, which is obviously where Resolution Home Loans, NOLCAST Studios are located. It's price, rates, and the quality of service, right? Shannon really is going to walk you through all the steps you need to know. If you're already a mortgage expert, awesome. He'll work with you. If you're a mortgage novice, again, he'll work with you. Really good rates. Give Shannon a call, 844-FSU-LOAN, more than 40 NOLCAST listeners have now got their home loans through resolution in just two years. Also, if you're a veteran or a first responder, check out their Hamilton for Heroes program. All right, Kyle, uh, Kyle H. writes, Hey guys, appreciate the off-season content. With soccer season getting underway, I thought I'd put together a scenario that blends both of your, your areas of expertise, soccer and recruiting. Early National Signing Day 2020, uh, FSU must go up against another college heavyweights in a penalty kick scenario with each assistant coach getting one shot at the top recruit on their board. In what order do you position Norvell's staff? Which coach are you most confident will make his shot? So, Ingram, I need some advice here. Like, do you put your best shooter first in a, in a soccer shootout? Do you put him last? Like, is like tug of war? Is there strategy on this? Uh, there is some strategy. You don't want to necessarily overthink it. Traditionally, you would have somebody that's you're really confident at number one, and you want to have a good amount of confidence at number five. In theory, it doesn't necessarily have to get to the fifth kick taker, uh, but more times than not, it does. But yeah, you you want all five of your people as, as likely as possible to put it in the back of the net. So this is going to be tough because a lot of the ways of evaluating people you you kind of need to know how they're going to recruit at their you know respective institution uh, recruiting it i'm not trying to uh, just talk nonsense here but obviously recruiting at memphis and recruiting at some of the schools that uh, people have been at are, are different if you're asking me just for who i'd put out there at number one now it's gonna it's gonna depend on the type of prospect where he's from what his interest and background is but if you're just asking for a broad swath Robert Marv wouldn't, if he's not number one, he's going to be number two or number three on my list, almost certainly. Ooh, okay. I, I like that one. He's a young guy. 
should connect with kids well. Um, you, you got the confidence in him closing. All right. I'm going to go with Yak. Coach David Johnson, to, to me, is, is my guy who I, I want out there first. Uh, but clearly, on the Nolcast team, he can run second. Tomorrow, that's fine. I Look, he, he's been in big recruitments before. I know he, he he's, knows how to recruit in a number of different areas. He, he's proven himself, I think, at a number of schools. And he's, I, I think, pound for pound, he's probably the best recruiter on Florida State staff, in my opinion. So that we're off to a pretty good start here, I, I think. Uh, you're up. There, are there five shooters in PKs? Yeah, unless it goes into, unless needed more, but we'll do five on this one. I will, uh, I'll stick with the offensive skill position and, and have Coach Dugans in spot number three for me. Uh, it's an exceptional recruiter, obviously proved his worth this year. And uh, with Dugans and Johnson, you've got two two skill position people on offense that uh, that know the game they're playing and are, are pretty damn good at it. Okay, so now we're two offense, one defense. This next one I feel is is pretty tough because there, there's two or three guys here who I think are are roughly on the same level in my mind. I'm going to go Dillingham. I think just because he's done it at at a school like Auburn, we we know he's been involved with some high level recruitments. He's also done a lot with the junior colleges, and and he's he's a pretty relentless recruiter. Um, I don't know that like he's the the most hip dude in the entire world, but at the same time. He's young enough to connect with the kids, and uh, and I, th- I think he stays on them pretty relentlessly. So I'll go ahead and give me Kenny D. Yeah, and with number five, I'll I'll go with Odell uh, again. If this is a kid out of Polk County, or if this is a, a defensive line prospect out of the Mid Atlantic, I may have Odell number one here. But uh, in general, I will choose him with my my fifth and final selection. Uh, really, another two or three names here that you could have on this list. And guys that could completely move up it in a rapid manner. It wouldn't shock me if in in 16 months, if we were to do this again, that we don't get past spot two or three without having Fuller's name come out of our mouth. It just We'll just have to see how he does at Florida State. But that's a guy that's going to have success, uh, a lot of real energy, and we'll, we'll wait to, for, for full confirmation. But I think he'll do quite well recruiting at Florida State. Jimmy Lee writes, what are the chances LeBourne and Kando remain as Knowles? Can we assume they'll stay if they're still with the team after spring game? Yeah, good question, Jimmy. Really good question. I My honest answer is, is I don't know. So far, they're both still with the team. They're both still attending workouts, so that's an encouraging sign. Uh, I don't think Kando's ever missed stuff for disciplinary reasons, right? It's, it's always been injuries, and yet there's all kinds of transfer rumors out, out there that like are at least possible. I think a lot of people assume, you know, because he was recruited, you know, by Jimbo's staff. Now he's two staffs removed from the people who recruited him. That it could make sense that he could go somewhere. And, and I am interested to see if he does. I know he's also a guy who's pretty serious about his about his schooling. So my guess is if he was going to go somewhere, it would be like a, as a grad transfer, you know. But we'll we'll see what comes of that. With with, with Lambo, man, I don't know. They brought in a lot of running backs. We'll see if if, if Corbin is eligible. We know if if Lambo is going to be the number one guy for sure. Like I think there's a lot of assumption that he is, but I guess we'll see how how he looks in, in Coach Norvell's offense. Uh, and you know, is he a guy who can stay on the straight and narrow as far as following the path that Coach Norvell wants everybody to follow? I I don't know. I think it's worth questioning that. Right? He's he's had multiple disciplinary issues throughout his career. Yeah, uh, Kane Doe, there seems to be a quiet uh, kind of creeping confidence about him staying with the team. Uh, LeBourne, you know, if you if you listen to the podcast with a fine-tooth comb, 
over the past three or four weeks, you've you've heard Bud and myself uh, have concerns as to whether or not there'll be the consistency uh, in the running back room as far as uh, retention there. And LeBourne would be a, a candidate to possibly look elsewhere. Certainly wish him the best wherever he goes. Been a fun prospect and will be a kid that's ever so fondly remembered for uh, what he did in a in the Virginia Tech game, if nothing else. And in the opening, because he committed he committed in a Lambo. He, with a Lambo, yeah, which is still, yeah, yeah, it's, it's as was, good as it gets. Uh, committed with a Lambo and then ran out, juked what would later be the number one national linebacker in the country, I do believe. So uh, went straight from Lambo into drill, one said drill, threw around some chops, yeah, uh, LeBourne, you'll be remembered fondly. And I, I I hope he does well for the 2020 Knowles. I mean, like, like if he sticks around. Christian asks, you mentioned that the ACC and Big Ten have come out in favor of allowing a one-time transfer with no penalty or sitting out. This may be, be naive, as I don't know much uh, about the specifics of rules and, and NCAA's power, uh, but would it be possible to think one or both of these conferences would implement this rule themselves for their own members and tell the NCAA to kick rocks or is that something the NCAA has the power to stop a conference from doing? Um, I think we can both throw our two cents out there. I mean, there's certainly been, uh, from the NCAA's perspective, the long-held concern about the quote-unquote super conferences or, or super conference developing. Uh, that's really the only way that you're going to see somebody be able to specifically tell the NCAA to kick rocks, at least in the current structure. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, what we mentioned last week, both of these, we do think this is the general direction that the wind is blowing and these conferences are trying to get out in front of it. Uh, but as far as autonomy it goes, uh, I'm not sure that's going to exist maybe as quickly as some people thought maybe five to 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, you know, we do know actually that the, uh, the NCAA Council will be voting on this, I believe, in April. So this could actually become a rule as of uh, September, I was told. Now, what I'm still trying to work to figure out is, if it's a rule in September, is is Corbin just good to go automatically? I don't know. Because I, I was listening to Tom Mars on, on, on a podcast the other day. Tom Mars is the uh, high-profile attorney who represented Shea Patterson in the, uh, the NCAA transfer case to Michigan to, to get his, his waiver. Additionally, also uh, repped uh, Justin Fields in, in his uh, endeavor to get eligible at Ohio State. So he's pretty up on, on what the NCAA is doing on a lot of this stuff. And, uh, he was very confident that the NCAA was going to pass this and that they do not want to deal with this, like all these kids asking for waivers constantly thing. And they think, look, it doesn't look very good if we are allowing volleyball players to transfer without penalty, but the players in the sports that are predominantly black uh, cannot transfer without a penalty. Also, like this transfer penalty stuff kind of sounds like employer non-competes, <laughs> and you really don't want to have non-competes on your employees. If you're trying non-paid to, labor force. If, if yeah. you're trying to claim they're not employees, right? Like, in general... If trying to claim that someone is not an employee, treating them like an employee and making them work a schedule like an employee is really not the best idea. I know some of my, uh, you know, some people I know at a former job uh, were not as good at towing that line as others, right? Uh, with, with your, yeah. Anyway, so you need to need to not have athletes treated as employees if you want them to not 
be employees legally? As to this question, no, I, I don't think they're allowed to do this either. I think you nailed it. Um, this this is an NCAA issue, but looks like they're going to vote on this come April. So very excited to see what comes of that. It would certainly untangle uh, quite a, quite a lot of things. And then the people like who would be seeking waivers at that point would be the players uh, who are uh, looking to transfer for a second time. And most kids don't transfer more than once. So that would be that'd be kind of interesting. All right. Uh, thank you to Travis Johnson of the Metter and Johnson Law Firm. Ingram, did you know that 401ks, IRAs, pensions, FRS plans, and other retirement accounts are subject to division and divorce regardless of the length of marriage? Travis Johnson knows. Travis is a board-certified family law attorney. There's only 280 of those out of more than 110,000 attorneys in the state of Florida with over a decade of experience. Each case is unique, and Travis has the experience to handle your specific situation with the care it deserves. You can reach Travis at 850-435-9919. So whether you're going through a divorce, maybe you have an issue dividing property, questions about alimony, disputes over child support, visitation, problems enforcing the terms of existing order, want to modify a prior visitation or support order, call Travis, 850-435-9919. Maybe you don't need Travis right this minute. Still, it's possible you could in the near future or medium term. 850-435-9919. That's Travis Johnson of the Metter and Johnson Law Firm. All right, bud. Michael asked us a alternative timeline question. We've had some real good ones of these recently. Uh, Michael states, luck is hard to evaluate because you only notice the things that don't work out. But how might the Taggart error have turned out differently if FSU had had better luck in either of the following circumstances? Less O-line attrition between 2017 and 18 is the first one. Uh, he states maybe at least two of the following, Ruble remaining at FSU, Bell avoiding off-field issues, Dickerson, Minshaw, etc., staying healthy. The second alternative timeline is that the referees properly review the backwards pass against Miami in 2018. Do we make a bowl in 2018? Is Taggart still here? Does FSU sign a much better recruiting class? What does the staff look like, and does the administration still nickel and dime the football program? Wow, okay, so a lot of really good. Uh, these are fun, right? Like, we, we like these hypotheticals that aren't insanely off the wall. Like, these are all things we could see happening. If you, I guess I'll, I'll tackle number one. Do they make a bowl in 2018 uh, if they had less offensive line attrition between 2017 and 2018? Yeah, I think they absolutely do. There are a number of losses that are directly traceable to just the complete inability to, to physically block anybody. Uh, you only need one more win in 2018 to make a bowl. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that if you have, uh, you know, two of Dickerson, Menchu, Ball, uh, Ruble in, in your lineup, that you're a win better. Which win? I, I'm not 100% sure. Now, would the recruiting class be better? Yeah, there's no doubt. If you don't, if you don't miss a bowl, the recruiting class would would certainly be better. Uh, what would the staff look like? Well, I think Walt Bell would still be gone, right? And that, that clearly did not work out internally. Would there be any any, any changes on defense? I don't know if the Levitt thing would have worked out differently. Uh, probably not. I, I, I would say, but Bell certainly. Um, and then probably also Greg Fry, if you knew you were going to go ahead and get Kendall Bryles, uh, which is 
you know, what I think in some ways he wanted to do initially uh, upon his hiring. What do you think about uh, about number two? What, what happens if the refs properly review that backwards pass against Miami in 2018? Uh, it's tough. I mean, it's tough with all of these things, and it's also a lot of fun with all of these things because there are, at almost any point in the Willie Taggart era, you can point to something and wonder if it would not have made a significant difference. Yeah, I think the game against Miami was a really significant point in Taggart's tenure. Uh, I personally think the Syracuse game, uh, both the way that it was handled, some of the calls that were were made from the sideline uh, having to do with officials, and subsequently the failure to pivot away from some of the best recruits in the country after that game when you had a pretty good idea you were really bad is where I would point my moment in time with with Willie Taggart, but you can choose a ton. You can choose a ton, literally from his choice of uniform against Virginia Tech to when he ran the wild cam or, or if he even would have asked for for a, a TD to be reviewed in that game uh, to bring this, this full circle. But yeah, the Miami game, you went down, you played as good as you possibly could have uh, for a stretch of time. It looked like you were on the basis of having a real signature win to which this coaching administration never had. And, uh, yeah, I think you would have gone to a bowl game. Obviously, you would have with a direct uh, win going into what was otherwise a loss. It would have helped in recruiting some, but there was so much, uh, so many other things going on behind the scenes that unless it everything would have turned with that game, that I don't know it would have been like night and day difference in recruiting. Does the staff change? I think like, I mean, look, we, and we've mentioned this before. We were talking about Walt Bell leaving before we ever got out of camp in fall of his first year here. So, yeah, Walt Bell was was going to be out regardless. But, uh, yeah, a lot of good alter- alternative timelines, and uh, that was a, a fun little look back, Michael. We appreciate you writing in. It might have just prolonged the inevitable, you know, as, as far as Taggart not, not, not being here, because he would have needed to show progress in this year for sure. Uh, and, and like continued progress. So there's absolutely no guarantee that was going to come. Okay. Uh, I think we are on to Adam M. It's a winter lull question from Adam. Adam writes, you have spoken at length about the impact of the early signing period has on recruiting and how it makes it very difficult for new hires to get a high quality first signing class. Why was the early signing period implemented in the first place? And has it turned out to be expected Uh, by those who advocated for it. With the benefit of a few years of hindsight, has the early signing period been a benefit or a hindrance to college football as a whole? Sure. So great question, Adam. We we appreciate you you sending this one in. So why was the early signing period implemented in the first place? Because coaches did not want to have to keep recruiting kids who they had had committed for months on end. They thought, okay, if you're actually committed, let's just sign. I don't want to have to worry about all this crap. Over the Christmas holiday and Christmas break, let's let's have this done. There'll be a couple kids I, I still have to be thinking about, but we can have this, this this whole deal over with. I don't have to keep babysitting these kids essentially, and, and keep like keep recruiting these kids uh, until they until they sign. Like for another ten weeks, when most of them have already decided where they want to go, and it also allows me to get a head start on the next class. Now, with the benefit of hindsight of a few years. Has the early signing period been a benefit or a hindrance to college football as a whole? I, it kind of depends on on the benefit or hindrance that you want to weight the most, right? I, I don't think it's been a good thing 
for a lot of recruits who are committing to schools and then immediately seeing coaches leave those schools. And I can't blame those coaches for doing that either, right? They have freedom of movement, just like hopefully the players will have soon. The coaches who wanted this rule, they were not operating from the standpoint of, hey, what if I get fired? How tough is it going to be to for, be for me to recruit at my new job? Everybody always kind of thinks like the most optimal situation. Or if I take a fired guy's job, but absolutely. Everybody looks at it as, as optimal and everybody looks at it as though that they're in their employ- current employer building a program and reaping the rewards from consistency, which are delivered under this model. Absolutely. Go talk to some coaches who are at schools that are on new staffs and, and they'll probably tell you just how hard it is to get in, especially now. I I do not believe that that the coaches and, and the people who wanted this rule passed, I don't think they foresaw this becoming an 80% proposition as far as where almost all of your highly rated kids are signing early. Um, and that's that's something maybe they'll have to take a look at. I, I would move the date up to create more uh, separation between the early date and the later date. And I would combine it with uh, my basically like get out of jail free card, which is not the same as, as a transfer. This is more like getting out of your letter of intent. But my, my idea is if you sign with a school and the head coach, the coordinator on the side of the ball that you and the school agree you're going to play or your position coach, if one of those three leave before your season starts, right? Cause that's a pretty damn short period of time. And that's kind of immediate bait and switch type stuff. I'm, I'm trying to cover with this rule. If one of them leaves, you can get out of your letter of intent if you want and go somewhere else before your, before your high school senior season starts or before you start as a freshman. Yeah. So if you sign with them, they need to be on that staff at least for your freshman year. Okay. I want you to get at least Mm -hmm. one year. That way it's not this immediate bait and switch stuff. Cause I, I think you should be able to back out if the people you committed to are no longer there. I don't think it's been a great thing for players. Uh, although many of them don't know any different, uh, for coaches, a lot of coaches has been an awesome thing. For some of the coaches who are on these new staffs, it's been a real pain in the ass. Uh, so it just kind of depends on on who you want to ask. But I, I don't think there's enough differentiation right now between the early period and the late period. I mean, 10 weeks is not, I don't think we're getting the, the benefit of it as a sport. Very interesting. The further you push that thing up, at least my perspective, you're, you're a subject matter expert here, but the further you pick push that thing up, the further that the consistency of staff is going to be benefited and the further that said staff is going to start recruiting next year's class as well. Uh, So you're just going to accelerate the evaluation, the offer process. Uh, It'll, it'll be interesting to say, uh, certainly. So in in your world, would you put that at like August 31st or something? Would you put it at the end of the summer for them to sign or where would you have the first window? I would would do it basically like, like, like mid August. Um, but before kids could get it in before their senior season correct. starts. Just if you if you already know what you're doing, you can get it out of the way. Cool. Let's have a true early and then late signing period as opposed to like, you know, mid, late, and late, which is kind of what we have now, because 10 weeks to me is not that big of a deal. Um and then look, I think fewer kids would sign early if you do it, if, if you moved it up. And, and I think that's probably a good thing. I would not sign at all. By the way, if I was if I was a nationally like elite recruit, big believer in your theory of this. I don't mean to keep stepping on you, but you've you've written about this for years, and I, I completely agree. If you're good enough to, if you're of that group, 
don't bind yourself at all. The, you know, they'll hold a spot for you. And by the way, the best way to figure out what school really, really wants you and will value you as a person and a player and will hold your spot and will say, hey, like we're actually going to put the time into developing you like we really need you. Try to pull that move. Say, hey, I just want to enroll. I don't want to sign a letter of intent, right? Like the schools that are like, yeah, okay, we're just going to go get somebody else. That's probably how they're going to treat you once you get on campus because they're going to try, they're going to recruit over you and they know they will, especially if you're like a, you know, a second or third choice at one of these really top, like, you know, really top schools. Most kids don't, don't do that. Uh, Dane, I think this is a really good question. The question is, what is the ceiling for the ACC networks and the profits derived from it? It's something I'd want to spend more than 90 seconds discussing, and it's something that I would want to make sure uh, our numbers are as accurate as possible. So let's table that one, Dane. Uh, give me 10 days or so, and I will come back with a, a much more informed answer for you. Chris says, how concerned are you with the level of players that are transferring? Three stars transferring doesn't seem like a big deal, but McKitty, Harrison, and Lighton were all good four-star recruits. Uh, could that pretend of a staff that isn't able to work with the higher-level recruits and ego? Chris, I think it's a valid question, but I don't know that we have the sample set to say that yet, and I, I really kind of doubt that 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 will be the case. Uh, for instance, McKitty was already looking around, I believe, once Willie Taggart got let go. I don't think that him staying or not staying has a whole lot to do with with who Florida State hired. I think he might have left, been leaving regardless, actually. Uh, I, I think McKitty had an interest in playing at a Georgia, Auburn, playing at somebody that, in his opinion, thought he had a chance to win at least a conference championship. No doubt. Uh, and he probably doesn't want to catch passes from James Blackman anymore, who has not been very consistent. Although McKitty's not exactly consistent catching the football. Harrison is a dude who was a, just a pure Willie Taggart dude. He had no real ties to the Southeast. Uh, I think his family probably wanted him to get back uh, out West or to stay with Taggart. Like clearly, that's what's going to happen. So, no, I, I don't think those two have anything to do with Norvell. Uh, Lighton is, is is the one that would have something to do with, with the new staff and, and what they want. But yet there are other players who seem to be buying in who were even higher, like higher rated as recruits. Uh, than Lighton was. So I really wouldn't worry about this at that point. I, I just think it's 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 far too early to say something like that. Kessner, a frequent contributor to the Nolcast, writes tonight, how does the program get back to a level remotely close to where it was if we can't recruit top talent? And we need to win to recruit top talent. But the offensive line is so bad, we can't compete at a level to get the wins needed to get the talent to improve. This is basically like the chicken or the egg, right? So the answer to this is, Time and relationships, right? You are in, in your first two years, you really have to sell your vision because you're not going to have a whole lot of proof of concept. The idea that recruits have to see wins in order to come come commit is, is not true. Uh, we see this all the time. Teams that are loaded up with good recruiters manage to get kids that their win-loss record suggests they probably should not. And some of these teams that win a lot of games, uh, some years end up not recruiting quite as well as you think because maybe the recruiters on their staff are not quite as good. So I will not deny that there is some relationship between winning and recruiting well, uh, but it's not the only thing. So how do you do it? Well, you need to have a good enough year on the field where kids don't look at you as a total joke. That's a good, pretty important start. And then, Ingram, I think you have to take and you have to win some recruiting battles based on relationships, right? Based on family feel, okay? And and just you know, having that that real vibe, that that connection, if you will, that exceed that sort of 
it just rises above whatever that team's record is. You have, you have to be able to go above and beyond there uh, in the recruitment of that player with your relationship uh, with him and make sure that he really uh, he really believes in the message that you're sending. So yeah, like they're not going to compete at the highest level this year for recruits, but they can they can compete for a couple at that level, and then I think they can be very competitive uh, in sort of that next tier down. And getting some of those players in will allow them to compete perhaps in a year or two uh, for even better ones. But this is going to take time. If you have two, if you have two of these classes, these transition classes in a three year span, I'm not saying you're screwed. But I do think that the chance that you're entering a legitimate long-term rebuild is high. And I know I know the message board people don't like to hear that. And it's not a guarantee, but I think the odds are pretty damn good. Everything you said, uh, complete agreement with. I also say that you have to display a level of competency on the field uh, to compete those that will support you off of it in, involved and engaged. It doesn't mean that you have to... Uh, you know, win 11 games or anything like that. But you, you've got to give reason for people to continue to believe and invest in you and give you the support necessary to win um, the selective recruiting battle. The support is there. I will also tell you that, in my opinion, there's a little bit of a backlog of support. There is <laughs> there is a uh, there is a clogged drain when it comes to to providing the necessary resources necessary for Florida State to compete and I think if uh, if competency is displayed, Florida State can win some selective battles that are necessary to see itself climb back up the recruiting charts uh, to ultimately be in a place to uh, be kind of the program that Kessna talks about previously. Let's end tonight on uh, on Spencer's question because we're going to be just about an hour, and then we'll pick up uh, Blake and Derek. Uh, we, we saw your questions, and we'll uh, we'll get to those. First thing in the next episode, or well, at least in the next episode. I don't want to promise first thing. All right, so Spencer F. says, we're seeing some good traction in regards to recruiting in, in the 21 and 22 classes. Targeted prospect feedback about FSU and the new staff seems to be very positive. What is the over-under on the number of games we will need to win next year and the following in order to maintain momentum and see an upwards of 60% close on these kids? P.S. Loving the upgrades in production value. Yeah, we, we've got some really good feedback about the the, the sound quality of the show. Uh, shout out to, to our, our, our producer, Justin, for that. And we appreciate your patience as we tried out some things uh, as, as far as you know improvements or, or potential just changes to the show. Got some feedback on that, and some will continue. Probably a lot of them won't, and that's okay, right? Like off-season is a time for experimenting and uh, seeing what works, and, and we've, we've heard you loud and clear on some of the feedback. He didn't really list uh, specific names as to who he believes Florida State is in good with right now. I, I think it, it'll be very interesting to see who shows up on that March 7th junior day, right? Because that, that'll give you a good indication of where you are throughout the Southeast and kind of saying, okay, uh, this kid's going to go to this school this weekend. Is he going to come to Florida State too? Is he going to swing by on a Sunday? Is he going to come through maybe on Friday? We, we don't know. But I, I think that they probably need to win – like to get to keep kids engaged this year, if if they win what seven, I feel like that's that's fine. Like like you you made it a bowl game comfortably, if you win seven, and then next year you really can't backslide if you want to improve this thing. So 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 eight. I mean, I'm not expecting a whole lot out of, out of the 21 team. I mean, just based on the current roster, 15 regular season games over two years, I, I think is probably the minimum. 15, yeah, I'm, I might even push that up to to 1 and 16. That's a lot to ask. Uh, but I think that uh, 
if, if you show competency, you'll continue to recruit better. Also, if you show competency, you're not going to necessarily be selling championships to some of these kids in the portal, uh, but you may be able to sell a little bit of a better story of transformation of program and then being able to play a bigger role. Uh, if, if you do what you need to on the field, I do think you can maybe be a little bit more successful in plugging some of the, uh, you know, the more obvious glaring holes on this roster in, uh, in, you know, making yourself a little bit more of a competent look than we project for 2021. Dude, absolutely. I, I think I'm, I'm there with you. I, I'll, I'll stick with 15 just to be a little bit different, but, uh, but yeah, like get to a bowl game this year, show some improvement year two. Use those relationships in order in order to get what you need to get done. Be competent and don't have a team quit on you. That's that's the final thing that uh that I'm just throwing out there. Need to you need to have some decent level of buy-in. If the results aren't going to be there, at least have buy-in and have a uh, tangible transformation in in culture uh, as far as a, a consistent effort and uh, quote unquote professionalism that's brought out by the the kids that are wearing the spears on their helmet. So uh, one final comment there. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, if you guys like the show, five stars on iTunes, especially low, if you would leave us a five-star review, that really helps the show's ratings. We, we know we're the, the biggest FSU show out there and we just hit the, the well, we just had a, a record February again. So very excited about that, obviously. Uh, but keep hitting us with those five-star reviews on iTunes. If, if you can, if you haven't reviewed in a long time, uh, go ahead and pull it up and, uh, or pull it up on your uh, kid's phone or your significant other's phone and, and hit us in, in that review season with those five stars. Appreciate it. Reviews are also great if you want to write one out. All right. We will talk to you all next time. This has been the Knollcast. The Knollcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and myself, Ingram Smith, produced by Justin Robinson, with music by Judson Wright.